Morning, Whitefields. Hope you all had a great Christmas. Today is the last Sunday of 2012. Tomorrow is New Year's Eve. And I don't know about you, but I always think that uh, New Year's Eve, I mean New Year's, it's kind of a strange holiday. I mean, don't you, don't you think? Because you ever think about what, what are we really celebrating at New Year's? Um, we're not really celebrating any like event that changed history, you know, like any great event in history. We're not any monumentous person like we do at Christmas or at Easter or, or even on national holidays like we do on the 4th of July, you know. Um, all we're really celebrating at New Year's is well, we, we kind of ran out of days on our calendar and now we got to start a new one. And, uh, you know, maybe we should just call it calendar changing day and, you know, we could wish each other a, a happy calendar changing day and, you know, you could ask people, hey, did you get a present for calendar changing day? Let me guess. Was it a calendar? Yeah, probably it was. But, uh, but you know, New Year's is also, a, there is a good thing about New Year's, and that it, it gives us a sense of, of a new beginning. It gives us something to gauge things by, something to measure by. It gives us the opportunity to evaluate the past 365 days. So what it does, really, is it gives us perspective. And perspective is really important. You know why? Because perspective helps you see things clearly. I don't know if any of you ever, you know, do photography, but if you do, you know that perspective is everything. You can take a picture of something, but if there's no perspective that, that helps you see how big or how small that thing is, then it's just kind of confusing. So what New Year's does, it gives us perspective. As we look back on the past year, we look back on victories, we look back on blessings, we also look back on struggles and difficulties, and it helps us gauge those things. We can see God's faithfulness in our lives. We can see God's hand in our lives in ways that we might not have been able to see when we were in the middle of those things that we were going through. Perhaps for some of us, when we look back on the past year, you know, we see areas of our lives where we didn't follow the Lord, and now we can see very clearly where those decisions have led us. That's perspective. Perspective helps you see things more clearly. It helps you gauge things. You know, as we look forward to the new year, there's a lot of hopefulness. Uh, but there can also be anticipation along with it because we don't know what kind of surprises this new year will hold for us. But as Christians, we do have every reason to be hopeful, even in unsurety. Because we know that as children of God, he is sovereignly working all of our circumstances together for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. So as we open up God's word today, what we, uh, you know, we were doing a series for Advent, which we finished up. That's called A New Day Dawning. We finished that up, and we're going to continue in our study of Genesis, but we're going to start that next week. This week is kind of a, kind of a freebie, so I'm going to uh, just do a kind of a standalone teaching, but it's also going to be in line with the next series I'd like to do in the spring after we finish up in Genesis. So as we get into the word today, let's go ahead, bow our heads, and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in this place. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here to teach us and lead us and guide us, Lord. And Lord, we bless you this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you have blessed us. And we come here today to meditate on the gospel. Lord, to fill our minds with the truths of the gospel, with the truths of God's word, Lord. We want to fill our minds with these doctrines. Lord, because it's, uh, these doctrines are the hope that we have. They are the peace that we have, Lord. And so we ask that you would help us this morning as we fill our minds with the gospel, Lord, that they would seek, sink down into our hearts these, these truths of your word. And Lord, that they would impact our lives, that they would change the way that we live, they would change the way that we think about everything. 
So Lord, we ask that you would do that work in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, just as, at the, as the new year is a time of looking back at the last year and looking forward to the new year, the, really the best way to read the Bible is to look back and look forward. You know, the gospel message is a word for today, absolutely. The Bible, God's word, the gospel, it speaks to every person right where they are at in whatever situation they're at today. But the reason the gospel message speaks to today, the reason it's relevant, is because the gospel is a, is a comprehensive message. And that's why it's relevant for all people at all times. It's a comprehensive message. It tells us where we've come from, and it also tells us where we're going. You know, and it's only in looking back and in looking forward that we can truly understand our lives today, that we can truly make sense of where we're at right now. And God's Word gives us that perspective that we need to see ourselves and our lives clearly. We don't know what's going to happen in this coming year, but part of the reason why the gospel is good news is because it does tell us exactly what is going to happen, what the future holds ultimately for those of us who put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ for our redemption and salvation. So today, what I'd like to do is look at one of the great plot lines of the Bible. And as we do that, we're going to be looking backward and we're also going to be looking forward. You know, the Bible really is a literary work of art. You know, the more you get to know about the Bible, the more you have to be impressed with it. The more you have to realize that it is beautiful. It is masterfully crafted. It is probably the most masterfully crafted book in the history of the world. Because the Bible is not just one book, right? It's a collection of books. It's 66 different books written by about 40 different people over the course of 1,600 years in three different languages on three different continents, right? But... but at the same time, considering that this was written over such a long period of time by all these different people in different languages and different places, there's this incredible unity to the Bible. And part of that unity comes out as we read it, and we find that there are certain plot lines that carry throughout the whole Bible, from the beginning through the middle to the end. There are these reoccurring themes that come up over and over. You know, one of the most important developments in biblical theology recently, it's, it's really nothing new, it's just a re-realization of something, and that is this, that the Bible is a narrative. Which means that all the stories in the Bible are not just random stories that are somehow loosely connected because they all talk about God, but the Bible actually forms a narrative, a story, a grand story, and that means that every story that we read in the Bible actually serves to tell part of that grand story. And so when you consider how the Bible was written over this long period of time, dozens of different authors, many of whom had no contact with each other, they wrote in different places at different times in different languages, it really makes you realize how incredible it is that when all these parts come together, they form this unified narrative. And one of the most incredible things, as I said, is that there are these themes that run throughout the entirety of it. There are these plot lines that are reoccurring. And what this all amounts to is that it, these plot lines, these reoccurring themes, they bear witness to the fact that God himself is the author of this book. These are really the fingerprints of God all over this book that point to the fact that he is the one who inspired these writers. He's the one who inspired these themes and these plot lines so that when they would all come together, it would form one unified whole. One of the greatest plot lines in the Bible is that plot line of the tree. The gospel is really the story of three trees. 
right? The tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of Calvary. In the opening chapters of the Bible, we read about the creation of the world. And at the pinnacle of creation, God created man. He created the man and the woman. And God created this paradise. It says that God actually planted a garden for them. God got his hands dirty and planted a garden for these people to live in. It was a paradise fit for life. It had everything that they needed for life, not only physically, but spiritually as well. In designing this paradise, God, along with all the other trees and plants, God placed in the center of this garden two very special trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It says this in Genesis chapter 2. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, what's up with these two trees? Well, the one, the tree of life, this was the tree that if you eat of it, you live forever. And right next to it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God tells them, you are invited to eat freely of the tree of life. Come and take and eat and live. But he also told them there's this other tree here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But don't eat of it. If you do, you will surely die. Now the question that everybody asks, the natural question is, well then why did God put that tree there in the first place, right? If he's going to create a garden, he's the one designing it, why would he put a tree there and then forbid people to eat of it? You know, if God designed it, why, why didn't he just not put that tree there in the first place? Wouldn't that have just saved us all a lot of trouble? Well, here's why God put the tree in the garden. Because these two trees offered something. These two trees right next to each other, it, literally in Adam and Eve's living room, on their coffee table, so to say, you know, right in the middle of their life. They offered them something every day. The tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right next to each other in the center of the garden, they offered every day the opportunity to either trust God and obey God and live, or to not trust God and disobey God and die. Every day. You know, the reason it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because at this point, the man and the woman did not have an intimate, experiential knowledge of evil. You know, all they knew was good. They were totally dependent on God to give them instruction. The only choice they really had was to obey God or not obey God. Now, don't you think it's interesting that God only gives them one rule to follow, right? He didn't tell them, don't hit each other and don't lie to each other and don't kill each other. Don't steal from each other. No, he only gives them one thing to do, and that is don't eat from the tree. God didn't tell them not to do anything else. He just said this, I want you to trust me by obeying what I tell you to do, even if you don't totally understand why. What God was saying with these two trees is that the basis of our relationship with him has to be trust in his character. Trust in his goodness, trust in his love, trust in his faithfulness. And therefore what sin is, when we disobey God, what we are doing is we are trying to become autonomous from him. We are, rather than submitting ourselves to him as Lord, we are trying to become autonomous from God. The best definition I found for sin is this. Sin is a grasping for spiritual and moral autonomy from God through rebellion and unbelief. 
When we sin, we are, we are essentially saying, no, God, I know that, that you said this, but I don't think you're right, actually. I think I know better than you do what will really make me happy, what will really be good for me. I think I know better than you do. God placed these two trees in the middle of the garden where Adam and Eve would have to look at them and see them every day. So that every day they would have a choice to make. Do we trust God and obey and live? Or do we not trust God and disobey and die? God was telling them what, what he says essentially to us throughout his word, what he says to each of us even today. He says, I lay before you today good and evil, life and death, curse and blessing. Choose life. Choose blessing. Trust me on this one. It's like he's saying, here's a glass of water and here's a glass of antifreeze. Don't drink the antifreeze, okay? It will kill you. But what happened? Adam and Eve, they did what, what we so often do, right? They say, well, you know, that's just one opinion. I think we're going to have to try this out and find out for ourselves. So they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they gain an intimate knowledge of evil, an experiential knowledge of evil that they didn't have. And with that act of rebellion, sin entered the world. God's word puts it this way. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so sin spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, because of the sin that happened at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we are all born with a death sentence. Given the choice between life and death, between blessing and curse, our first ancestors chose death. They chose the curse. And the fallout from that has been huge. We're still experiencing the fallout of that. All of God's good creation became cursed. Even thorns began to grow out of the ground. Nature was no longer only beautiful, but it was now also harsh and vicious and deadly. And God told Abraham, or Adam and Eve, he said, don't eat from that tree, because if you do, you will surely die. In the same way, God's word tells us that all people have sinned, every single one of us, and that the wages of sin is death. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, do you remember what happened? Here's what happened. They were cut off from God, and they were cut off from the tree of life. They had been created to live forever, right, in relationship with God, but now they were separated from the tree of life and they were left living in a corrupt world as cursed people. And so there at the beginning of the Bible what we're faced with as we see these two trees is we're faced with a problem. How do we get back to the tree of life? How do we get redeemed from the curse? How can we get back into this relationship with God who created us to know him? At the tree of the knowledge of good and evil we were cut off from the tree of life. And the same story has been repeated in each and every one of our lives. We too have sinned. We too have rebelled. We have chosen autonomy from God. And we too are cut off from the tree of life. We are cursed people living in a corrupt world. We're cut off from God. We're condemned to death both in this life and for eternity. So what hope is there for us? Well, here's the hope that we have. The hope of the tree of life that was lost at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is found at the tree of Calvary, at the third tree. Fast forward a couple thousand years from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and I want you to see Jesus Christ carrying this roughly cut hunk of lumber on his back, bloody, 
and bruised, cut open. He's carrying it up a hill in the city of Jerusalem. The city of peace. That's what Jerusalem means. This one whom the Bible calls the Prince of Peace, of whom the Bible says he himself is our peace. He carries this piece of wood on his back, bloody, beaten, bruised, so much so that his body cannot even bear the weight of it, and it crushes him. He collapses beneath it, and that is so symbolic because that is exactly what was about to happen in the spiritual realm. He was about to be crushed for our iniquities. Upon reaching the top of that hill called Calvary, they took that chunk of wood, that piece of lumber that had been on his back, and they attached it to a tall wooden post, and they nailed him to that tree. God's word, you know, repeatedly refers to the cross of Jesus as a tree. It says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Knowing that we had brought a curse upon ourselves through our sin and rebellion, knowing that we had cut ourselves off from God and from the tree of life, knowing that we had placed ourselves under a death sentence, God became a man and took our place. He took upon himself that death sentence that we deserved, that we might be pardoned. He took upon himself the curse that we had brought upon ourselves and upon creation by becoming cursed himself that we might be set free. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Now fast forward with me once again to the last chapter of the Bible. The chapter that Lillian read for us at the beginning of the service. Revelation chapter 22. And what do we see there? We see heaven. It's a picture of heaven. I don't know if you ever read the Bible and you feel moved by the words that you read. I hope you do. That's always my goal. When I read the Bible, I want it to hit me hard. I, I, when Lillian was reading that, I'm just letting it hit me hard. You know, what do we see there? We see heaven. We see the new Jerusalem. And, and what's there in the center of the new Jerusalem but the tree of life once again? And just as by Jesus' wounds on the tree of Calvary we are, he we are healed from the curse of sin and death, we read that the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. And it says there, I find it so beautiful, it says, no longer will anything be accursed. You know, those who are in that place, in the presence of God, which will be, it says it will be so glorious that the radiance of it will be so strong that we no longer need lamps. It says we no longer even need the sun because he himself is the light. The glory, the radiance of his glory will be the light that we need. And it says that we will reign with him forever and ever. The gospel is the tale of three trees. The tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of Calvary. We were created to live forever in the presence of the Lord. But because of rebellion at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we were cut off from the presence of God. We were cut off from the tree of life. But God, because of his great love for us, because he's rich in mercy, he became a man, he bore our sins on the tree of Calvary. 
that we might be free from the curse and brought back to the tree of life in the presence of God, that we might eat of it and live forever. The story of redemption is the story of these three trees. And the good news of the gospel is this, that that story of redemption, the story of these three trees, this can be the story of your life if you will enter into a covenant relationship with God through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross for you. On the tree of Calvary, God took upon himself our curse, that we by faith might receive his righteousness. And you know what the result of that is? It's peace. On the tree of Calvary, in the city of peace, hung the prince of peace, he himself who is our peace, because upon him the chastisement was brought that brought us peace. God's word says this, Now since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you what, when you have peace with God, you know what that does? It gives you peace of mind. Not only do we have peace of God through the peace with God through the tree of Calvary, but if you really get a grasp of that, if you really get an understanding of what that means, if you if you let that become a reality, that truth become a reality in your heart, here's what it does. It gives you an incredible peace of mind. Now, do you know do you know what the major difference is between the Bible and every other major philosophical system in the world when it comes to the area of peace of mind, when it comes to the question of how to have peace of mind, the difference is that all the philosophical systems other than the Bible, they will tell you that the key to having peace of mind is to empty your mind of negative thoughts. It's to get those thoughts out of your mind. If you will go into a bookstore and go to a sec the section about anxiety and managing stress and worry, how to have peace of mind, the books you will find there will always go straight to technique. They'll always do, go straight to technique. There will be techniques about how to deal with your stress, breathing techniques, you know, have a rhythm in your life, work, rest, play, right? It'll teach you thought control techniques, techniques about how to control your thoughts so you don't let your negative thoughts rule your mind. But the Bible does something different, actually. The Bible says something completely different and actually much more profound, much deeper. The Bible says you've got to go deeper than just techniques. Let's go to the root of the issue. The Bible doesn't tell you to empty your mind of negative thoughts and, and things you're worried about to deal with your anxiety. It doesn't tell you to just go up to the mountains and clear your mind. What God's Word does is that it actually tells you rather to fill your mind with doctrine. Fill your mind with the doctrines that you know to be true. In other words, the Bible tells you to do something that no self-help book or anxiety management technique will tell you to do. And that is this. The Bible will tell you that the key to having peace of mind in all circumstances, even the most difficult and trying circumstances like injustice and sickness and the loss of loved ones, the key is to consider the big questions of life. Where did I come from? Where am I going? What is my purpose in life? What is wrong with the world that we live in? And what is the solution? It tells you to turn back to the big questions of life. And that only works if you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you have this biblical worldview. Otherwise, you know, thinking about the big questions of life would probably just make most people more stressed out. But if you have 
the hope of the kingdom of God, if you have the hope of Jesus Christ, as a Christian, these doctrines that the Bible teaches us, these answers to the big questions of life, they're the reasons why we can have peace of mind that is unshakable, even in the midst of trouble. Because it's peace of mind which is based on the promise and the unchanging truth of the gospel. You know, Paul the Apostle, he talked about this when he wrote to the Philippians. And he told them not to be anxious for anything, but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make all their requests known to God. And he said, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then he went on to say a few verses later, he went on to say that he had learned the secret to being content in whatever circumstances he was in. He said, I learned it. That means it's something that has to be learned. It means it's something that doesn't come naturally. It's not what we're naturally inclined to do, but it is something that you can learn. It's possible to learn it. The entire reason why we as Christians can have peace of mind, even in the midst of difficulty, is because we have peace with God. It's because we know where we've come from and we know where we're going. It's because we know that we came from God and we're going to God. We came from him. He created us in loving kindness, knitting us together in our mother's womb. He cares so much for us. He even knows, you know, not a hair falls from our head without him knowing about it. It means he thinks about me quite often. And uh, we are going to God, right? Um, this life is short and we have this eternal life to look forward to. But in the meantime, we can also face life with confidence today. Knowing that in Christ we are accepted, we are loved, we are forgiven, and we're redeemed. And you know what that means? That he, the, the judge of the world, was judged for you. You know what that means for you? That you're no longer on trial. It means you no longer have to prove yourself. You're no longer on trial. The judge of the world took your place of judgment. And now he's working all things for your ultimate glory and for his ultimate good. This is the perspective that we have as Christians. Just as at this time of year, around the new year, we're looking forward, but we're also looking back at the past year. When we look at the Bible and we see how God speaks to us, the reason the gospel is relevant to today, the reason God's word is relevant, is because it's a comprehensive message. It tells us to look back and to look forward and gives us perspective on where we're at today. We need that full perspective to understand the full nature of our redemption. And I pray for us all that the story of the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of Calvary, that the, the story of these three trees, that this would be the true story of your life. We've all sinned at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, yet because of the tree of Calvary, we can once again come to the tree of life in the presence of God and eat of it and live forever. That's the gospel. And I pray that this truth would give you perspective on your life, on the world that you live in, and that the implications of this truth would cause your heart and your mind to be filled with peace in all circumstances. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. Lord, we thank you that although all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, although the wages of sin is death, Lord, you climbed the hill of Calvary, bearing the tree upon your back. You were pierced for our transgressions. You were crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement 
was brought on you that brought us peace. And Lord, by your wounds we are healed. And we thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that the truth of that, the reality of the gospel, Lord, let it sink down that 18 inches from our head to our heart, Lord. I pray it would make that journey, Lord, and that it would become a reality in our lives. Lord, that we would live in the reality of that. And Lord, that it would be a stable rock in our lives, Lord, the thing that gives us perspective on everything else. And I pray that that peace would be a reality in all of our lives. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.